And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula, and Tami Kuza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Civilians bear the brunt of conflict in eastern DRC. UN envoy says the Syrian crisis is the biggest threat to peace and security in the world. And UN tourism summit gets underway in Victoria Falls. In economics, African port experts meet in South Africa. And in sports news, Malawi's national soccer team coach to report Stephen Keshi to FIFA. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The UN fact-finding mission investigating the alleged use of chemical weapons in Syria is preparing to conduct on-site fact-finding activities starting today. The mission, headed by Dr. R.K. Selstrom, is currently in Damascus to investigate an incident that took place in the Gotha area last Wednesday involving the alleged use of chemical weapons. Jerry Adams reports. According to the statement, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has instructed the UN fact-finding mission to focus its attention on ascertaining the facts of the 21st of August incident as its highest priority. Secretary-General notes the Syrian government affirmed that it will provide the necessary cooperation, including the observance of the cessation of hostilities at the locations related to the incident. The Secretary-General remains grateful for the cooperation and dedication of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and the World Health Organization, as well as for the commitment of their staff assigned to the mission. As the civil war in Syria spills further out of control with the possible attack by Western forces pending the security situation in Iraq following the 2003 invasion of the country by the U.S. remains volatile. More than 40 people were killed yesterday, including the burning of five soldiers. Mel Frickberg reports. Car and roadside bombs killed at least 42 people across Iraq on Sunday. The single deadliest attack took place in central Bakuba, 65 kilometers northeast of Baghdad, when a car bomb blew up near a housing complex killing 11 people. In one of the more grisly incidents, five soldiers were shot dead by gunmen who then burned their bodies. The attackers ambushed two taxis carrying soldiers on the road to Mosul from Baghdad and killed the five officers in Kayara, 290 kilometers north of the Iraqi capital Baghdad. The United States is alarmed by the escalation in fighting in eastern DRC between M23 rebels and Congolese soldiers and again called on neighboring Rwanda to stop its support for the rebels. The State Department condemned attacks by the M23 that killed at least three people in Congo's eastern city of Goma on Saturday. It also expressed concern over reports by the United Nations of shelling by the M23 into Rwanda territory. According to the Congolese government spokesperson, Person Lambert Mende, experts have found that the missiles that hit Goma were fired from the Rwandan district of Rabavu. It is M23, the real ally of Rwanda, who fired from the DRC to Rwanda territory so as to give Rwanda a pretext to help M23. So the Rwandese better. Go ahead with uh, cross-checking to know exactly who fired at their territory. We dismiss this accusation as totally irrelevant. It is not 
the FRDC. We deny that accusation. UN Security Council members have expressed grave concern over the increased occurrence of conflict and violence and its effect on civilians in South Sudan. In particular, a marked deterioration in the security and humanitarian situation in parts of Jongli State. They strongly condemned attacks on civilians and the looting of UN and other international aid organization facilities also in Jongli State. The UN Security Council underlines the need to address the underlying causes of intercommunal violence in South Sudan and urges all parties to seek peace through reconciliation. Ambassador Maria Cristina Pesivel of Argentina is the council president. Deplore the fact that these attacks have caused large-scale displacements of the civilian population and call on the government of South Sudan, which has primary responsibility to protect civilians, to expedite safe and unhindered humanitarian access for the timely and full delivery of humanitarian aid to all civilians in urgent need of assistance. And finally, Nigerian aviation authorities are probing how a teenage boy managed to hide inside the undercarriage of a plane from the southern city of Benin and land in Lagos. Airport security arrested the stowaway teenager yesterday after passengers alarmed them. The passengers saw the boy emerge from the undercarriage of the 45-minute Arik flight from Benin. The Federal Airport Authority of Nigeria says the airline should be blamed for the incident because it fails to act when the boy was sighted on the tower before the plane left Benin. That's the news for the hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And in our top story, at least seven civilians have been killed in and around Goma during fighting between the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the March 23rd rebel movement. Women and children are among the victims. Jean-Noël Bamweze has more from Kinshasa. At least four people were killed in Goma on Saturday by shells from rebels of the March 23rd movement, raising the death toll to seven since clashes began last Wednesday in and around that capital city of the North Kivu province. Fighting between the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the March 23rd movement started last Wednesday after rebels entered the security zone. The UN mission here has implemented around the city. The UN Intervention Brigade, whose mission is to neutralize armed groups in that part of the country, finally engaged into the fighting. The troops with an offensive mandate opened fire on rebels on Thursday. The government of this country has welcomed the fact that the brigade has gone into action. The government spokesperson has looked at this as a very good achievement. Lambert Mende. Of course, it is a very good achievement. We know that our partner, MONUSCO, was waiting that uh, the Malawi force be deployed. Since this is done, we hope that uh, this pressure on uh, negative force will be maintained. Yesterday they fought, today they are with us. We hope that it will be 
the same for tomorrow and the days to come. This comes while both the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda are trading accusations to have bombarded each other's territory. Authorities in Kigali accused the Congolese National Army to have deliberately fired a rocket across the border onto Rwandan territory on Thursday, but Kinshasa replied that such a rocket was fired by rebels of the March 23rd movement. According to the Congolese government spokesperson, experts have found that the missiles that hit Goma were fired from the Rwandan district of Rubavu. Once more, Lambert Mende. It is M23 the real ally of Rwanda who fired from the DRC to Rwanda territory so as to give Rwanda a pretext to help M23. So the Rwandese better go ahead with uh, cross-checking to know exactly who fired at their territory. We dismiss this accusation as totally irrelevant. It is not the FRDC. We deny that accusation. Rebels of the March 23rd movement briefly seized the Goma in November last year and pulled out following a regionally brokered deal under which they were supposed to remain several kilometers outside the city. United Nations investigators have accused Rwanda of backing those rebels, an accusation the Rwandan government has repeatedly rejected. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa. Kinshasa. South Africa's high-power delegation led by President Jacob Zuma is in Malaysia to boost political, economic and social ties with the Southeast Asian country. Malaysia remains the largest investor in South Africa from Southeast Asia with investments in petrochemicals, hospitality, telecommunications and real estate, among others. Several cabinet ministers and at least 30 business people from different sectors are accompanying President Zuma during his stay in Malaysia. Ntebo Mukobo is there and filed this report. Malaysia is an important economic partner for Pretoria and Southeast Asia and remains the largest investor in South Africa from the region. Total trade between the two countries has grown steadily from almost 14 billion rent in 2008 to just under 20 billion rent last year. By the end of 2012, Malaysia ranked as South Africa's 23rd largest export partner and 20th largest import partner in the world. And with Europe as the largest trading partner with South Africa still struggling to recover following the economic downturn in the Eurozone, Pretoria sees the Southeast Asian country as an untapped market to make business and spare its economic growth. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis explains. This is an opportunity for us to redynamize a very important relationship. Uh, Malaysia is uh, in our top uh, 25 uh, trading partners, both uh, exports and imports. It's also a uh, significant investor in South Africa in petrochemicals, in a um, number of uh, industries in agro-processing, and also in uh, sectors like uh, tourism leisure in South Africa. But it's uh, more significantly than that is that Malaysia is a very significant investor in the African continent, also in petrochemical industries, in uh, agro-processing sectors. Currently, several South African companies, including Dinel, Sasol, Sunlam and Nando's Chicken have offices in Malaysia. Minister Davis says Pretoria stands to benefit a great deal from its relations with Malaysia. South Africa is looking at a number of uh, possible areas of cooperation arising from some of the offsets that uh, uh, have arisen from 
an important contract that Denel uh, secured with Malaysia. And I think this could uh, yield a, a win-win uh, possibility. We're also looking at trying to encourage Malaysian uh, automotive manufacturers to consider becoming involved in a multi-original equipment manufacturing project, which we're looking at establishing in East London. On the political front, Malaysia was the fiercest critic of apartheid South Africa in Asia and traditionally maintained close ties with the ruling ANC. Last December, Malaysian Prime Minister Najab Dun Razak was amongst the 46 heads of state attending the centenary celebrations of the ANC. And at government-to-government level, the full diplomatic ties between the two countries were established in 1993 and the South African High Commission in Kuala Lumpur was opened in 1994. And this visit will surely mark the 20th anniversary of diplomatic relations between Malaysia and the democratic South Africa. International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maite Nkwana Mashaban elaborates on these historic ties. It's a very, very important visit because of the historic ties we have with this country. They supported us during the difficult days. They were the first biggest investors when we came into government in 1994. They are still among the biggest investors. We have very good trade relations with this country. They are one of the founder members of ASEAN, so this has been a good partner we have in this region. And we are re-establishing ties between SADC and ASEAN, and we think they've got a bigger role to play in that equation. During his stay in Malaysia, President Zuma will receive an honorary doctorate of leadership from Limco Queen University. Again, the president will receive a lifetime award for global peace on behalf of former President Nelson Mandela from the Mahathir Global Peace Foundation. Ntebu Mokobo Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. The Joint Special Representative of the United Nations and the League of Arab States for Syria says the Syrian crisis is undoubtedly the biggest threat to peace and security in the world today. Lahta Brahimi says the problem is that the parties that are involved in the civil war, each one of them think that they can win militarily. He stressed that there is no military solution to the crisis, adding that no side is going to win. Andrew Martin spoke to Brahimi about this day situation. You know, I think that the Syrian crisis is undoubtedly today the biggest threat to peace and security in the world. What has happened, this story, this allegation that chemical weapons have been used a few kilometers from the heart of Damascus, as a matter of fact, emphasizes the importance of this crisis and the danger it represents, not only for the Syrian people, not only for the region, but the world. And the Secretary General of the United Nations has been saying for a long time now, I think every time he speaks about Syria, he says there is no military solution to this conflict. There is only a political solution. And the political solution, the ingredients to make a political solution are already there in the final communique of the conference that took place in Geneva on the 30th of June 2012. That's more than a year ago. So what is said to have happened yesterday is one more illustration of the danger of the situation in Syria and how necessary and urgent it is to start really climbing down from this situation towards a political solution. Your office has moved to Geneva. Can I ask why the team has come to Geneva? You know, we were planning to come to Geneva for the last stage of preparation for the Geneva II conference. And the idea was that for this conference to take place in September, 
That is why we planned to come now, and I think it was very convenient to do that. Whether the conference takes place in September or not remains to be seen. With the recent events on the ground in Syria, how important is it that that conference happens quickly? What is happening now in the ground with this story about the outrageous alleged use of chemical weapons, with the destruction of the country that has been taking place for two years, with the spread of the problem outside of Syria through the flow of refugees, and also the involvement of neighboring countries in one way or another in the conflict, it is indeed now the biggest threat to peace and security. And I think there is an agreement that the declaration of this communique of Geneva, 30th of June 2012, contains the ingredients that would make a settlement possible. The problem is that the parties that are involved in this civil war Each one of them think that they can win militarily. We believe, the Secretary General of the United Nations and a lot of other people believe that there is no military solution. No side is going to win. There is only a political solution, and the earlier we work on it, the better. The last time you spoke in Geneva, you said you were embarrassed that you couldn't get everybody around the negotiating table. How much closer are you, or nearer are you, to getting Geneva 2 to happen? We could say that the international community is now close enough to an agreement that a political solution is the only way. The parties are not there yet. But I think that the political solution was rejected outright by the parties. Both sides were saying no. You know, the government was saying we're fighting terrorism, and that's all. And the opposition were saying we have a very unjust, cruel, oppressive regime. We want to get rid of it, and we can, and we shall. Now both speak of the possibility of a political solution. And have events yesterday, have people you've been speaking to, has that changed the dimensions of the discussions? It has helped emphasize the threat and the seriousness of the problem. It's too early to say what kind of positive results it will yield. Could you put a date or could you give us any hint of when Geneva 2 might happen? No. You know, the Americans and the Russians are meeting at the end of the month, on the 28th. We are discussing with them the possibility of another meeting, tripartite meeting, Americans, Russians and the United Nations. And then the General Assembly is taking place where there is no doubt that Syria will be discussed left, right and centre. Earlier than that, on the 5th and 6th of September, the G20 are meeting in St. Petersburg, and there is no doubt that Syria will be one of the issues that will be discussed, although this is supposed an economic summit. That was Joint Special Representative of the United Nations and the League of Arab States for Syria, Lahda Brahimi, talking to Andrew Martin. Healthcare-associated infections are a major threat to patient safety worldwide and transmission in these settings is mainly from the hands of healthcare workers. Dr. Edward Kelly of the World Health Organization says a recent study found that in many cases health workers clean their hands in the proper way only about 50% of the time. As a result, WHO developed a strategy to improve hand hygiene for health workers which is easy to practice. Dr. Kelly discussed the strategy with UN Radio's Patrick Maigua in Geneva. The issue of 
hand hygiene, one would think, would be a general practice. When I talked to my father going in to have surgery, he says, well, I can't imagine that anyone wouldn't wash their hands. That's something that one assumes, but when you're working in an incredibly complex and busy clinical environment, you may clean your hands, but then you may engage in different tasks and then move on to treating a different patient. And so it's when you actually clean your hands that's important. And I think that in terms of the high burden, our paper looked at this and showed quite a varying number in terms of the baseline and what we found across the different countries. What kind of diseases can health workers pass to their patients when they don't clean their hands properly? Well, there can be a range of issues that are from not so serious to much more serious in terms of some of the infections that we studied. There are diseases such as Staphylococcus aureus as well as antibiotic-resistant MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus that might be transmitted. Then there are much more minor sort of infections that can be transmitted that can aggravate patients' situations, even though they may not be life-threatening themselves. WHO has been conducting a study on its hand hygiene strategy in a number of countries. What has the study established about hand hygiene among health workers? Basically, the study itself established a number of things. The first is that compliance with hand hygiene best practices is lower than we would have expected. You know, the study looked from December 2006 to 2008 in a number of different pilot sites, so it included up to 43 hospitals. And before the intervention, compliance with proper hand hygiene in many cases was only about 50%, half of the time, health workers clean their hands in the proper ways. The second key finding is that this can be improved even in very difficult, very resource-poor settings such as Mali and in difficult transitional settings such as Pakistan. And the approach, though, must be multi-pronged. You have to also provide the tools and then you also have to engage leaders to ensure that the strategy is taken up across the institution and is valued. In some of the developing countries, hand hygiene can be an issue because there could be lack of water. What can health workers in such situations do to make sure patient safety is guaranteed? The work we did was to develop guidance on what constitutes a correct sort of formula for alcohol-based hand rub. Now, for those people living in the developed and transitional worlds, and even in much of the developing world, there's commercially available hand hygiene products that would meet the WHO standards that are available for buying, whether in gel form or in solution form. But we also produced guidance on how countries and communities and hospitals even can make this kind of alcohol-based hand rub locally usually using local products. For instance, in Mali, we produce this locally using sugarcane derivatives. And this is something that's been now, Mali is serving as a model for other countries in Africa through our African Partnerships for Patient Safety as a training site for other countries interested in producing alcohol-based hand rub locally. So that provides, if you can get it in small bottles, which is another challenge, but something we've worked on, then with the ability for a health worker, they don't have to go find a sink or another place to wash their hands. They can carry this with them and clean their hands at the appropriate times as they go through their day. At what time or when should a health worker ensure that they clean their hands? And should patients demand that a health worker does clean their hands? Yes. 
Well, in fact, it's a, an important point, and engaging patients in being educated about this is one of the key steps that I think sort of need to be promoted more. WHO promotes five moments of hand hygiene, the most important moments people would recognize, such as before patient contact and after patient contact. But then there are three others, including after contact with biologic material, sort of human product, such as blood. So the five moments that we then put together was done as part of a communication campaign so that the five moments correspond to kind of the five fingers of your hand, and it's easy to remember, and all of our materials that have been adapted. We have over 200 different adaptations on our website by countries that have taken this, but at the core, there's always the WHO five moments for hand hygiene. That was Dr. Edward Kelly from the World Health Organization talking to you and Radio's Patrick Maigua. Americans are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Reverend Martin Luther King's most famous speech, but social and economic gaps between whites and African Americans have only widened over the last five decades since hundreds of thousands of civil rights activists marched on Washington. Nina Maria Potts reports. We cannot be satisfied. As long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one, we can never be satisfied. It's been 50 years since the words of Martin Luther King changed America's racial history forever. In 1963, nearly 300,000 people marched on Washington, marking a crucial turning point in the civil rights movement. I have a dream that one day, This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Five decades on, hundreds of thousands are commemorating that dream. Reenactments of the 1963 march are being held across the country. But the original organizers say racial inequality hasn't gone away and their fight against discrimination never stopped. Norman Hill is President Emeritus with the A. Philip Randolph Institute. We are here again, not just to commemorate or celebrate the march, but also to generate the political momentum that can address pressing economic and social problems today. Norman Hill is a prominent civil rights activist and played a central role in organizing the march 50 years ago. This time around, his goal is to answer Martin Luther King's call for justice for today's African Americans. For example, the demand to call for a massive jobs program to put all the unemployed black and white uh, back to work on meaningful and dignified jobs at decent wages. At Washington, D.C.'s historically black Howard University, They reject the idea this generation of students is less committed to the struggle for equality. Kevin Peterman is a political science student. Students are still on the front line. There are still students organizing. There are still students willing to march. There are still students willing to go to jail if it takes that. Um, We still, as as, although it may not be uh, present as it was in 1963, I do believe that students uh, still do care about the cause. And for many, the key is keeping the dream alive, even if it hasn't become a reality yet.
Taylor Davis is a nursing student at Howard University. Activism is something that you can cont- that is continuous. The dream is something that continues on. It's not anything that will ever be fulfilled because it's something that is meant to for each generation to take on the torch and sh- ensure that we can they can pass it on to the next. Americans across the country are celebrating 50 years since the March on Washington. And nowhere is that commemoration more felt than in Washington, D.C. itself, which is still a deeply segregated city. Nina Mwepot in Washington. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. We now cross over to Anne Musa for the headlines. Good morning. UN experts prepare to investigate a suspected Syrian chemical attack later today that claimed hundreds of lives. The United States is alarmed by the escalation in fighting in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo between M23 rebels and Congolese soldiers and again called on neighboring Rwanda to stop its support for the rebels. And UN Security Council members express grave concern over the increased occurrence of conflict and violence and its effect on civilians in South Sudan. Details and more at the top of the hour. Thank you, Anne. The 20th session of the United Nations World Tourism Organization General Assembly officially opened with a spectacular display of fireworks, dance and music at Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe last night. More than 4,000 delegates and invited guests gathered on the grounds of the magnificent Victoria Falls Hotel overlooking the Victoria Falls Bridge, listening to speeches on the importance of tourism in the economic development of Southern Africa and the whole continent. Hilda Akekelwa reports from Victoria Falls. President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe has called for the easing of connectivity and visa regimes if Africa is to increase its portion of the global tourism cake. Opening the 20th session of the World Tourism Organization, UNWTO General Assembly, at Victoria Falls Town Hotel last night, he said, connectivity of African cities, regions, and attractions is necessary for the marketing and promotion of the continent's tourism product. He also said it's very important that Africa evolves strategies that effectively lure tourists to the continent, but that this cannot be achieved without first promoting intra-African travel. We need to open borders through regional block visa regimes, which we are trying to implement as Univisa through Retosa will not only allow easier travel among Sadiq citizens, it will make it easier for the long-haul intercontinental visitor and investor. The type of seamless border between Livingston Town and Victoria Falls Town 
that has been put in place for purposes of this conference should become the rule rather than the touristic border communities throughout Sadiq and ultimately throughout Africa. Africa can only benefit from increasingly behaving like a single common market. In speaking earlier, President Michael Sata of Zambia said tourism is an emerging sector that could assist many African countries come out of poverty and called for more support for especially community tourism projects. The 20th session of the UN WTO comes against the background of a global realization that tourism is a sector of significance and importance with a great potential in contributing to the welfare to the wealth of the nations. It can also contribute to diversification and transformation of national economies. In this regard, the co-hosting of this important tourism conference by our two countries is a clear testimony of our commitment to the exploiting the regional potential of the tourism sector. Distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, as you need to discuss issues that will help us make tourism a global agenda, I would like to emphasize to you that well-designed and money tourism can make a significant contribution to sustainable development, create decent jobs, and generate trade opportunities for our countries. President Sata thanked Secretary General Talib Rifai and the UNWTO Secretariat for letting the Southern Africa region host the 20th UNWTO General Assembly and hoped that other regions of Africa will have similar opportunity. Meanwhile, UNWTO Secretary General Talib Rifai has commended Libya for claiming its position in the global tourism family. Speaking at the Libya night held at the Zambezi Sun on Saturday night, he said after so much suffering, it is good to see Libya want to show off its tourism potential. Libya is a great country that has been absent from our scene for over 50 years. 40-something years we have not heard from Libya, we have not seen them, they have not pronounced themselves as one of the most important destinations in the southern Mediterranean. With over 1,200 square kilometers long of beautiful Mediterranean beaches, wonderful Roman archaeological sites, Islamic archaeological sites, and much, much cultural appreciated. Libya wants to come back again on stage, and that's why your presence here tonight is very much appreciated. There are still difficult times, but it is in difficult times that friends have to show friends that they support them. And it's in this difficult time that we must show people in Libya and people in many other parts of the world that we're with them, we know what's happening. Invited guests to the Libya night watched a video showing the country's historical background and also sampled traditional Libyan cuisine and tourist attractions. The night was one of the side events of the UNWTO. Tonight, Cambodia has its own night. 
The UNWTO holds its General Assembly after two years. The 2013 Assembly is the 20th in line, the first to be held in Southern Africa region and the second on the continent of Africa. The General Assembly has been described as the greatest success with a record number of 147 member countries attending out of the total of 156. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingston in Zambia, I'm Hilda Kekelwa. Malawi introduced the fertilizer subsidy in 2005 and that has improved maize production in the country, which was known for its famine prior to 2005. The abundant food due to the subsidy also contributed to the landslide victory of late President Bingu Wamutarika in 2009 polls because people appreciated his special focus on dealing with hunger. And this year, Malawi has set aside $150 million for the subsidy program, up from the 2009's $100 million. George Mhango reports from Blantyre in Malawi. Christina Msukwa is a teaching student at Amalika TTC in Tiolo. She focuses on new agricultural methods which would help reduce dependency on the fertilizer subsidy in Malawi. She has reservations about the farm input subsidy program because of its adverse effects on the already stagnant local economy, such as corruption and donor fatigue. She is also concerned that the subsidies might not be reaching the right people. She also says that if Malawi experiences drought, the whole subsidies project would be a flop anyway. Part of our work as a teacher is to encourage the use of alternatives to fertilizer. We teach them how to make manure, especially compost manure, because we understand these days organic farming is the most important thing which people are advocating for, rather using fertilizer. We had a demonstration garden of which we used compost manure, and we had another garden of which we used fertilizer. To our own understanding, we have seen that those which we used organic manure the vegetables were doing very, very good. Bagili Mazani, a Blanta-based commentator, agrees saying Malawi should find an exit strategy for the fertilizer subsidy. Even the Malawian authorities admit that the subsidy faces a bleak future considering the economic difficulties facing subsidy financial bankers such as the United Kingdom. He also says there are moral as well as practical reasons for abandoning the subsidy. In the future, if government will not provide this uh, subsidy, that means the farmers are going to suffer. Government now must take a different approach from the system which is currently taking to a different one, whereby people themselves, the farmers, they have to be independent because the food they produce is for themselves. It's not for anybody else. Development aid from people to people or DAB is an organization which is promoting alternative solutions to improving soil fertility. It started implementing a system of farmers clubs in Lilongwe, Chirazuru and Zomba in 2006 with funding from the U.S. Department of Agriculture before it took the concept to Tiolo. Luca Black from village head Madulira in senior chief Kadewere in Chirazuru, southern part of Malawi, has adopted what is called the potholing system. Initially, the poleholing system does not require fertilizer and land water, but rather irrigation of crop, low pump in, installed by farmers' gravel, also being advocated for by other organizations.
Potholing, as the name suggests, involves digging potholes in the plot of land. They are dug at regular intervals and measures 15 by 30 centimeters and are 15 centimeters deep. Seeds are placed in the holes along with manure or compost. Research by agriculture experts show that since the introduction of this method by farmers clubs which are dominated by female farmers, the average production has increased by almost a quarter over the three years from 2006 to 2009. Martin Mutelo, Dubs National Food Security Advisor, explains how yields have improved and why potholing system could be an exit strategy for fertilizer subsidies. In Malawi, the average production per hectare in small-scale farmers, in most of them, is around 900 kgs. But those farmers who have undergone this war training and all these uh, farming skills and technologies, they've raised their yield from 900 kgs to 2,500 kgs per hectare quite some time. Of the total bags per hectare, they, they used to apply more than eight bags. So in the long run, a farmer will be able just to use manure because they are all concentrated in this. On a recent visit to Dub Colleges in Tiola and Chirazuru, Atubele Muluzi, the Minister of Economic Planning and Development, said compost and manure could indeed be the solution, bearing in mind the soaring cost of fertilizer. With Malawi's population hovering at 14 million and 80% living in rural areas, agricultural experts feel the adoption of the potholing system would help reduce the dependence on fertilizer and rainfall. This could also have a beneficial effect on food prices and on inflation generally. From Blantyre in Malawi, this is George Mohango for Channel Africa. Dr. Tara Rai Trent is a Zimbabwean-American woman who was born of poverty in a rural village in Zimbabwe. A strong desire to have an education took her to the United States, where she eventually got her PhD. Tara Rai became famous when her life story was featured in a book called Half the Sky by author Nicholas Kristof. Later, Oprah Winfrey, an American television producer, host, actress, and philanthropist, among other things, ran a segment on terrorized journey to commemorate World Humanitarian Day and learn how each of us can transform our communities, Alex Goldmark spoke to Dr. Terrorized Trent, who is now building schools in her community. Growing up in poverty, I knew I wanted to make a difference in my own life. I wanted to have an education and I wanted to come to America to have my bachelor's, my master's and my PhD. And when I took the idea to my mother, my mother said, you know, Terrorai, we come from a tradition where when a child is born, the elders, they take the child's umbilical cord or the birth cord, wrap it in a cloth and bury it under the earth with the belief that wherever the child goes, the child will always come back to her community. So she said, so you can bury your dreams. And I buried my dreams. And so I realized at that moment when my mother said your dreams will have greater meaning if they are connected to your own community, I realized that it's not only about me and my dreams, but it is also about going back and make sure that the same women and the same girls, they also believe in their own dreams, they also attain their own dreams. And it's the reason why I am now building schools in my own 
Bitte. What is it in you, Terrorai, that made you be able to achieve so much and then now to start building a school and giving it back? I want to go back to the moral obligation that I have to an extent it's gratitude, but to an extent it's also a moral obligation. I come from a society that says I am because we are. Since we are, therefore I am. And it becomes part of who I am, and I have that moral obligation to give back to my community. No one is forcing me, but I'm also recognizing that to be who I am is because of others. I stand on the shoulders of many, many people, and I have that moral thing to give back to my own community. And when I go back home all the time, when I see men and women in my community bringing their own girls to me, as well as boys, and say, Terrorai, can she be just like you? I also realize that because in my community, we never had women as role models. Our role models have always been boys and men. And by educating girls, now they see me coming back and building schools and promoting education, promoting equality. And I think it speaks a lot to, yes, we can also have women as role models. These are the things that really drive me, to make more girls, more women be a role model in our own community. And how many students have passed through your school so far? So far we have about 4,000 children that have gone through school, and almost 60% of that are girls, and we also have about more than 125 teachers that have been trained. What would your advice to young people be? You know, I'm always looking for advice myself, but I always go back to what my mother used to say. You know, she used to say that we may have conquered the colonial enemy, but the enemy within is more formidable and worse than the enemy outside. So young people, don't be defined by your past, neither should you be defined by the challenges that in front of you work hard in the long run you will enjoy and also just to make sure that you align yourself with people that believe in your vision and align yourself for the greater good that was dr terry trent an author and humanitarian talking to alex goldmark we now cross over to isani matebula for our economics news Thanks, Lulu. The foreign exchange law in Angola has halved the amount of dollars auctioned by the central bank since June as the country considers letting its currency trade on international markets. The National Bank of Angola says the amount sold at auctions has dropped to $200 million a week from $400 million in June. This has happened before all companies were required to pay some suppliers in Angola's currency, the Kwanzaa. The Kwanzaa traded in 95.7 per dollar last week. Angola, Africa's second largest oil producer after Nigeria, passed a law last year that uh, may funnel $25 billion annually through the $116 billion economy by requiring foreign-owned companies, to, in, including Chevron and ExxonMobil, to pay taxes in Kwanzaa's. 
Malaysian Prime Minister Dato Suri Mohamed Najib says Malaysian companies can help South Africa in its infrastructure development drive. We're speaking after his meeting with South African President Jacob Zuma in the Malaysian capital Kuala Lumpur this morning. Zuma, accompanied by six ministers and 30 business people, is in Malaysia on a two-day official visit. Najib explains. President Zuma did uh, emphasize their need for very uh, uh, large investment in uh, infrastructure development and uh, Malaysian companies stand ready to participate in their infrastructure development. Malaysian companies have strength in uh, highway construction, power generation, port development, uh, airports as well as public uh, housing. So there are many areas in which Malaysian companies can avail themselves of the opportunities in South Africa. Chief executives from Africa's leading ports authorities are meeting in Cape Town, South Africa from today up until Wednesday to discuss maritime expansion. A delegation of Africa's foremost maritime industry professionals and an unprecedented lineup of thought leaders will discuss new strategies for the rapid evolution of Africa's ports and harbors. Ports are key economic enablers for development in emerging market economies. Chief Executive of South African Logistics Parastatal Transnet, Brian Mulefe, will deliver the opening address at the event and also highlight opportunities for cross-border collaboration in support of growing trade volumes in the region. And the plans to introduce a single visa for tourists visiting the Sardeg region are at an advanced stage. Details of the plan are expected to be finalized during the 20th UN World Tourism Organization, currently being held at Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. The SADC Univisa will allow free access to all 27 SADC countries. Zimbabwe's tourism minister, Waltam Zimbe, compares it with Europe's Schengen visa, which also allows access to several countries. I think next year we'll have it. Yeah, on the back of this conference, we have it. It will mean free access to uh, Southern Africa. You enter one, you enter all, just like your Schengen. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has threatened to expel foreign-owned companies over what he says is the West's interference in the politics of the country. He was addressing ZANU-PF supporters at the funeral of a top military chief, Mike Karakadzai in the capital, Harare. Since winning another term in office, Mugabe has vowed to push ahead with a black empowerment program to force foreign and white-owned businesses to cede 51% ownership to black Zimbabweans. Some economists have warned that the program will trigger another economic downturn like uh, that Zimbabwe suffered after Mugabe's government seized white-owned farms in the year 2000. And the airport's company of South Africa, AXA, says a strike by Satao's technical workers has not affected services at airports in the country. Hundreds of workers will down tools from today to demand a 12% wage hike while management is only offering 6.5%. AXA spokesperson Deborah Francis says they are monitoring the situation. As yet, Airports Company South Africa can confirm that the strike had no impact on any operation or flights um, across the country. SAA Technical has got contingencies in place to ensure that should anyone not arrive for work today, that um, operations will still go as per normal. Financial Indicators 
The US dollar trading at 10.23 to the South African rand at 8.51 Botswana pulis and at 5.33 Zambian kwachas. Also trading at 0.64 British pound and at 0.74 to the euro. Commodities, platinum is now at $1,534, gold $1,395 a fine ounce, and the price of Brent crude oil at $112.80 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Isani. We now cross over to Tami Kuza for our sports news. A quick look in your sport. Good morning once again. Malawi coach Thompson Fear is to report Stephen Keshi to FIFA after the Nigerian coach called him a white dude who should go back to Belgium. The pair have been arguing since Malawi asked FIFA to move next month's qualifier World Cup qualifier from Calabar for safety reasons. Saint Fear says that it's unacceptable that any person say these words. African sports journalist Oruashina Okeleji explains. I think the reason why Tom Fear and the uh, Malawi Football Federation made this request is the fact that Calabar is listed as one of the dangerous places you can travel to in Africa on the United Kingdom travel notice um, uh, website. So for them, that this is what they were this is what they were basing their own arguments on, and they were in their rights to also um, apply for this. And for Stephen Keshi, I was quite surprised by his reaction to this. Malawi has requested for this game to be taken elsewhere. Zimbabwe's Warriors last night received a rousing welcome upon their return from Zambia with hundreds of friends flooding the Harare International Airport to celebrate the victory by Ian Goroa's side. The airport was at sea at yellow and green as the Warriors fans left their homes during that time of the night to give their players a hero's welcome. half team, the Chipolopolo, failed to qualify for Chen after losing to Zimbabwe 1-0 at the Levumonawasa Stadium on Saturday. Now that qualification has been secured, Zimbabwe joins the likes of Morocco, Tunisia, Mauritania, Mali, Ghana, Nigeria, Burkina Faso, Ethiopia, Burundi and host South Africa for the finals. The three other qualifiers will be known later today. And in rugby, South African Springbok coach Hania Kemea insists that his side will learn valuable lessons from their scrappy performance against Argentina in Mendoza on Saturday. The Bulls scrapped through for a 22-17 win, which was a far cry from their 73-13 demolition of the Pumas the previous week in Soweto. But Mea believes that they can take a lot from their lackluster display and that it will stand them a good stead for upcoming away games against Australia and New Zealand. South Africa's next test in the competition is against Australia. Australia in Sydney and that match will take place on the 7th of next month. And now in cricket, England and Australia drew the first Ashes test at the Oval in a thrilling fashion as the host wrap up a 3-0 series win on the final day at the Oval yesterday. England set a target of 222 to win after Australia captain Michael Clark's bold declaration needed 222 more to win off 24 balls with 5 wickets left when the umpires decided the light, even with the floodlights on, was too dark to continue and ended the match. The draw meant that England, who had already retained the Ashes, finished the 
five-match contest as three nil winners, having triumphed in the three successive test series against Australia for the first time since the 1950s. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe have lost their two-day 2020 series to Pakistan after once again coming out on the losing end in the second and final match by 19 runs at Harare Sports Club on Saturday. The defeat comes hard on the heels of their 25-run defeat in the first game on Friday. That has seen the visitors wrap up the 2020 series 2-0. While for Zimbabwe, the defeat continues to raise questions about their pedigree to compete at the highest level of the games. For Pakistan, the win gives them the rating points to cover the gap between them and Sri Lanka who lead the ICC 2020 rankings. Pakistan are in second place on the rankings. The two teams now turn their attention to the three one-day internationals that begins at the same venue tomorrow. And finally with golf, Englishman Tom Fleetwood has won the Johnny Walker Championship at Glen Eagles for his first European Tour victory. Nick Dye reports. Fleetwood has long been tipped for the top. It's perhaps a surprise that it's taken until his 65th tour event for the former world number one amateur to take a first title. A birdie after the other two had narrowly missed their efforts secured top spot after a dramatic day and finale, which saw Bernd Wiesberger and Scott Henry also looking potential victors until Fleetwood rallied from an indifferent spell with an eagle at 16. He's still outside the top 160 in the world rankings. But he's clearly on the upgrade and it's likely that this will be the first of many wins. Captain Paul McGinley has been noting who's playing well on the course that will stage the next Ryder Cup. It's just possible the name of Tommy Fleetwood will figure in discussions when allocating wild cards next year. And that's our sports update and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Civilians bear the brunt of conflict in the eastern DRC. UN envoy says a Syrian crisis is the biggest threat to peace and security in the world. And UN tourism summit gets underway in Victoria Falls. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Asanda Bam with Mjojo. Sing, 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 Sing,
Sing 